you can turn uh, in your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. We're going to read all the rest of 5 and all of 6. It's all really about one topic. Um, folks back in the lobby, there are seats here. There are spaces. Um, if you, especially in the front half, people just are afraid of the front. Um, there are spaces, so if you guys see people walking in from the side, you can scoot in order to let them in. If you'd like, we can all stare at you the whole time, which I know you're really into. Uh, but there is room up here for now. This passage will be on the screen. You can read it there, you can read it in your own text, or you can just listen. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he can eat, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. He is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. What gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. The few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possession and power to enjoy them, to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness his name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, and it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth. His appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This is also vanity and striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, but he is not able to dispute with one another than he. The more it words, the more vanity, what is the advantage to man? 
For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, while he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Father, we thank you for this word. It's yours. God, we acknowledge the way that it gets under our skin, into our heart. God, we pray that you will help us to be attentive not just hear, but to listen, to not just see, but to receive. For this, God, we need the aid of your Spirit. Father, would you speak to us, that we might hear. Amen. Uh, Ecclesiastes, middle of five to the end of six, deals uh, with possessions, with wealth. Uh, in the, the piling up, the accumulation of wealth. And it moves in these three distinct ways. First of all, it's quite negative, as you probably were able to discern. There are three verses that seem quite positive and happy, and then it's very negative again. And we tend to enjoy that middle section quite a lot. That God gives us these things for our enjoyment, and these are a gift, and it's our allotment in life, and so on and so forth. It's difficult, in fact, to, to put all three of these pieces together. Um, commentators struggle to explain this one through line of thought, which isn't always how wisdom literature works anyway. But they are seen together, giving us some ingredients both in, in happy measure and in sad, for the instruction of our own hearts about our posture towards wealth and towards money. Uh, this is generally an uncomfortable topic for a lot of people, um, for good reason. But we have to acknowledge that this is not the only place where we see instruction on the usage and the desiring of wealth other wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs, has quite a bit of instruction on how you ought to go about your business, what you ought to do with your money. And Jesus himself speaks frequently about the role of money and wealth in the life of his followers. It is challenging in the way that he speaks about it. Of course, we also have to, when we are doing this, acknowledge our own cultural location. We are receiving these words, hearing these words, in a profoundly wealthy place. That it is not just wealthy compared to the rest of the world. It is also bent on telling us time and time again, all day, every day, that we need more of what we already have so much of. And so this is kind of in the air that we are breathing. When Jesus is teaching about the nature and the role of money and of wealth and the Gospels, he is speaking to a profoundly impoverished people with a degree of poverty that you and I are not familiar with, that requires exercise, toil to obtain water to drink. And the people who, who have, who have much, are very distinct from the people who do not. It's visible. You can see it. We live in a place where that kind of wealth is largely concealed. 
You can see signs of wealth in certain kinds of cultural symbols. Most people acknowledge that it's in poor taste to show off your wealth. So many of us walk around with the understanding that we are around people with money. And we are, in fact, in comparison to much of the world, people with money. We can walk around the parking lots and maybe make some judgments about, okay, I see that car, I see that car, they've got more money than me. But generally, we are not walking around with the very visible distinction between rich and poor because we largely live in a society that is rich. What we have to acknowledge is that the Bible speaks very starkly about the possibility and the dangers of wealth. Now, it is not anywhere specifically and totally opposed to wealth. We can wipe that objection off the table. Jesus' ministry is funded by wealthy people. The early church, we know, both in the text and archaeologically, is housed in wealthy people's homes. The earliest church gatherings happened in places where rich people had large enough structures that multiple families could be together to worship. And there is, in fact, nothing wrong with that. There isn't a passage of the Bible that just says, having money is bad. But we are probably, as Western Christians, far more familiar actually with that than we are with the dangers of wealth. See, I, I grew up hearing that all the time in church. The Bible doesn't say it's wrong to have money. It really doesn't say that. It's fine to have money, actually. Having money is okay. I heard that a lot. I didn't hear quite so much the but. It's dangerous. It is dangerous. And the, and the preacher is, is warning us of the dangers here. Now, there, there are stages and forms of the dangers associated with wealth. I'm not going to get into all of the things that he talks about. He talks about what happens if you have an inheritance and, and it does get passed on or, or it gets passed on to a fool or, or it doesn't get passed on, actually, and then you don't get buried. There's all these ways that money can go wrong. But a repeated theme in both of these kind of negative sections is the emphasis on the bottomless appetite for more. He says it here. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. And the danger of being incredibly comfortable with wealth, with money, is that it, it, this is just sort of the natural momentum of the accumulation of wealth, is that it doesn't fill you up ever, but instead sucks out the bottom of your appetite, so you just always need more. So often, if you listen to very successful people, you listen to very wealthy people who have no kind of framework or, or, or moral structure, Christian moral structure to their wealth, if you just ask them quite honestly, how much money do you need, the answer is more. You just need more. 
And that is the position in which you are in danger. The preacher says the accumulation of wealth that creates this bottomless appetite is a real problem. And it is destructive. The question you and I might have is why? Why does this become a problem? If you and I understand what wealth teaches us implicitly, we can be on the lookout for the things that wealth does badly to us. When you have money, and you can be saying, I don't have that much money. I barely pay my bills. Or you can say, I have lots of money and I'm really good at acquiring it. Anywhere along that spectrum, this applies to you. If you have money in your hand or in your bank account, the function of money is the exchange of one thing for the acquisition of another. And if you have any of it, you are automatically in the position to decide, I am able to fill my needs. Now, to some, to some degree, this is good. This is okay. God made you and me, you and me, to work. Working is good. Vocation is good. He didn't make people in the garden and say, every day is Sabbath. He said, the next day is Sabbath, and then the next day you go to work. Working is good. Filling the world with good produce, with, with good product of your hands. It's a thing that's tied into who we are as people. That is not wrong. But what money teaches you, divorced from any context or from the framework of relationship with God, is that I am in control of the provision of all my needs and wants. And this happens so subtly and naturally that you begin to, without thinking, see yourself as the prime provider for all that you want. And things so easily shift away from what you need to what you want, especially in a world like ours that's full of excess. When so many people so easily fill their needs, the shift away from needs and into wants is now even more firmly in my own hands. And this speaks to the prime fault of our people, the human race. The position that Adam and Eve coveted in the garden was that they themselves would be in control of what would be considered good and what would be considered evil. So the possession of wealth puts you in the arena of what our first parents failed in their ability to believe, which is that God is the provider, and in Him there is no withholding of generosity. God is not holding out on you. God is never holding out on you. But what money, what wealth does is it makes it easier to believe I will be the judge of that. I will be the one who decides when I have enough, what I should have. Jesus calls his people to an alternative kind 
of dependence and relationship with money. In many ways, the, the, the church in this culture has picked up uh, the, the tools, the weaponry of culture war over so many important and contentious issues in this world. And there's this kind of like, especially in evangelical churches, there's this kind of impetus to like fight, to push back against the ways of this world on any number of fronts. But I would make this suggestion to you. There is, in our Western culture, no more powerful statement of opposition to the ways of this world than to be a person of contentment. The economy of our society is driven by discontent. It is the natural way of operating left or right. Democrat or Republican lives under this domain of craving for more. And if you want to fight a war against the culture, I would say this is a much better, more painful, and more fruitful place to fight. That we would hear the voice of Jesus calling us to relinquishment of our possessions and our slavery to our possessions and seeing in him this one, one who is more than enough for me. And I, I am not speaking this to you as somebody who has divorced themselves from the clutches of a consumeristic culture, a, a culture marked by wealth. I'm telling you that in my own life, as I meditate on these passages, it is so easy to get sucked into the lure of wealth and of money. How many of my own possessions, my own cravings, my own desires are bent away from sharing with, giving to my neighbor, and instead feeding my own desires? My suggestion to you is that if you live in this culture, you should assume you carry the virus of consumptive behavior and greed in your heart. You should just assume it if you live in this country. Some of you are probably more virtuous than me. Probably a lot of you are. But all of us should acknowledge we are being discipled all the time in the world in which we live. In this world, this culture, this place, this time that we live, we are being explicitly taught to feed these appetites again and again and again. Accumulation of wealth is a goal, a fixture of our mind's environment. It will require of us an active pushing against, an active kind of generosity, an active contemplation of contentment if we are going to be disentangled from the ways of this world. I would ask you to examine your own heart. Are the things that you desire now, the things that are, are, are your, on your list of your targets for the arrangement of your financial affairs, are they the same as they were five or ten years ago? 
In some ways, time ought to shift what you do. But don't let that be a cover for the slow compromise of the raising of the floor of what it is I deserve. And if you are like me, who has seen that in their own life, you should hear the preacher saying, beware. That way lies evil. There is vanity in those pursuits. Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasure. Jesus says that it is difficult for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. We ought to take him seriously. Listen to what St. Paul says in his letter to 1 Timothy, a portion of which is probably a familiar verse for you, 1 Timothy 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Paul is almost certainly referring to the same passage in Ecclesiastes that we just read. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Do you hear the way that these themes rise to the surface for Paul? There, there is a measure, a component of godliness that is tied to contentment. And then when you are derailed from this pathway of contentment, you are quickly being sucked out to sea in a way that he says brings ruin and destruction. Beware! says you have to fight the good fight of faith. To me, when I hear this, <coughs> that's actually a relief. If Paul is saying that this is a fight and this is a struggle, St. Paul, I feel a lot better. Because it certainly feels like a struggle to me. It feels like war. It feels like I am, I am hemmed in from every side. And the, and the truth is, in looking at the state of my own heart, contentment is usually far down my own personal list of virtues. And if St. Paul 
and say that this is a war, then I too can put up my hand and acknowledge I'm feeling the effects of the battle. I, I am feeling tired. I'm feeling, to be quite honest, like a failure on many fronts. <coughs> Surrounded on many sides. You know, I, as I was getting ready for this, I was reading some letters and sermons from the persecuted Chinese church. And um, I was like, I can't read this anymore. They're like in a different class to me. They're, they're not like the, the ladder rung above me. They're on a different ladder, it feels like. I went back and read some of the words of St. John Chrysostom on wealth and the poor. And man, the early church was so strident on this. You, they, they would say things like, you who are wealthy, you are robbing from the poor. The wealth you have is theirs, and you hoard it for yourselves. And I, I'm afraid to face words like that. I'm afraid to face the testimony and conviction of my brothers and sisters in China. So when Paul says that this is a fight for the state of my own soul, for the state of my family, I, I am more convicted than ever that I have to put up my hand and say, I need help. I, I mean, I need help from, from you all. I need help from my friends, from my brothers and sisters who, who will look in honesty in my life and hear my own confession. I have been selfish. I have been self-seeking. My appetite has known no ends. I have acquired for myself and acquired for myself and acquired for myself ultimately piles of things that my children will throw away as junk because they do not know what to do with it all. I have to hire people to take away the excess of my own possessions because I have moved on to something else and I am so tempted by the things that I do not have so I can acquire more things that will ultimately just be either garbage in my own home or in some landfill far away, and I can't stop myself. I need my brothers and my sisters to look honestly at me, to help me, to live with me in contentment before Jesus. But more than that, I have to put on my hand again and say, Jesus, I need you. Ultimately, the teaching in Ecclesiastes 5 and 6 and the words of Jesus and of St. Paul and of the other church and our brothers and sisters in Christ ultimately are only exposing the greater truth that once again I have come to the position where I must understand. It turns out I need Jesus. It turns out again that I need somebody to save me from this mess. It turns out one more time that I cannot handle my own virtue. It turns out, once again, that I have plenty of sin to confess before God. 
It turns out that the scriptures read me one more time, and I am exposed not as the wise man, but the fool. Again. And so I am bidden by the scriptures to throw up my hands and say, if this is a good fight, I need a champion. I need somebody to fight on my behalf. And if I am going to be all right ever, I am going to have to lean on the generosity of God. You and I have a problem with wealth. You may be facing up and doing great with it. Okay, I don't know you personally. But you and I, we have a problem with wealth. We live in a danger zone. And you and I are in need of God. Wealth tells me I don't need anyone but my own desire, my own, my own ability to, con to generate and to control money. That is a lie. And what I need is the generosity of God. And while Jesus delivers words that convict me and call me to a different kind of life, it is in Jesus that I have hope. I do not just hear Jesus as a moral teacher calling me to a kind of life that seems incredibly difficult, almost impossible for me. I hear Jesus as a moral teacher who is doing precisely that and the supreme conduit of God's overwhelming wealth deposited and given over to me, the wretched and poor one, in need again of the great generosity of God. Jesus, both on one hand, tells me the truth about myself, that I am far too easily captive to my desires, and tells me the great good news of the gospel, that Jesus came for people like me, for fools, for sinners, for the greedy, for the rich, and for the poor. Jesus came for me because God, in his generosity, desired to come and win people like me. So even when I have to turn the page of the scriptures one more time and find yet again on this page, it turns out I am also still a fool. I can turn the page and hear the good news of the gospel and say, precisely you fools were the kinds of people I have made my sons and my daughters. I am not here to stand up here and say, it's all right for you to do whatever you want with your money. Jesus doesn't say that. Scriptures don't say that. I don't know what you should do with your money. That's a different question. It's likely, though, that you will hear the Son of God reaching not so quietly into your pockets. At the same time, I am here to tell you that if you, like me, have wondered if the fight is too far gone, the answer is no. It's not. Maybe, maybe you know, wealth is not really a thing that you struggle with. Maybe it's your own personal contentment in the relationships you have, your sex life, your job status, whatever kind of currency really does it for you. Maybe you've fallen so short. Time and time and time again. 
treasure houses of God's mercy have not been depleted one little bit. And for you and for me, there's hope. Because Jesus is still Jesus. If you are here today and you realize that you have been living your life by this dictate, to acquire and consume and acquire and consume, whether it's money or any other form of thing, today Jesus comes and stands before you with a word of liberation. That was a fool's game and a con. And you don't have to live that way anymore. <clears throat> Repent and come home. If you are here today, you are feeling the weight of your lack. If you are feeling discouraged by what you do not have, and the stress of trying to get to that next rent payment or the next mortgage payment or whatever it may be, for you too, the Father has more than enough. And all the anxiety that you are bound up in, Jesus would say to you, I see and feed every little bird in this world. And to me, you mean so much more. I will not overlook or forget you. <coughs> and if you are overwhelmed with the prospect of your own sin, Today, God is here to be generous with you. He will not stop being generous with you. If you feel convicted, it's okay. He's busy delivering you. Accept his generosity. If you feel condemned, that there is no hope. That is a lie. For you and for me, there is more than enough in Jesus. Today, come home to him. Let him lavish his love and his mercy on you again and again and again until you see him face to face. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your kindness and the riches of your love in Christ Jesus. We are people who have been greedy, who have been stingy, who have craved and hoarded. And we are sorry. God, I can feel like there can be no hope for us. I've been so ungrateful. God, we don't want to live lives anymore that are tied up in meaninglessness, vanity, smoke, and the steam of this world. God, our hearts long to just be okay with you. To see you and to truly believe that you are more than enough. We confess that our list of things that if we had it, we'd be alright. is longer than just your name. And we don't even know what to do with that. I don't know how to do it. But we know that you have to be the answer. Father, I pray for those who are overwhelmed with what they do not have. 
they would find their life in you. God, I pray for those of us who have plenty, more than enough. It's so hard still to be content and generous. Father, would you soften our hearts that we might hold our possessions lightly. Father, help us to see and understand the riches of your love in Christ. To have our hearts moved and softened by that. And to be filled up and satisfied like nothing else in this world can do. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.